0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric O'Connell. As Daniel said, I'm the high school youth director. This is pretty awesome. This is the first time I've preached where something hasn't happened bad in the first like 10 seconds. So we're on a good, good start. Um, yeah, I get the privilege to preach this morning, and it's an especially privileged occasion because my family from California is out here. Um, so if you see any tan people who look new to you, I just want to ask that you walk up to them and say something nice about me. I don't care if you don't believe it, if you don't feel like it at the time, just it re- I'd really appreciate that. It'd make the rest of my holidays pretty nice. Um, so for the last couple of weeks, Pastor Ron and Daniel have been focusing on... Um, the beginning of John, the Gospel of John, and what we've been doing is we've been looking at what is John trying to say about who Jesus is. If you've been joining us, uh, we've been journeying through, it. we just finished this last week, Um, what we've kind of journeyed through is realizing that Jesus was there in the beginning with God. Jesus is God, and he's the Word, and the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. Um, So that was really what John wanted to say, and this morning what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at two other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, Um, and we're going to look at the infancy narratives. Um, Or in common culture, they're known as the Christmas stories, the Christmas narratives. And since we just celebrated Christmas, um, you know, a lot of the celebrations that we have, unique Christian celebrations, the uh, hymns we sing, the carols, the uh, celebrations, the nativity scenes, a lot of it is centered around uh, the Christmas stories in Matthew and in Luke. And this morning, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to pay attention to how each author tells the story. Because just as John's version is very important, so is Matthew and Luke's. They tell two different stories, but our tendency is to often put them together. Because if I were to ask you what the Bible's version of the Christmas story is, this is probably what you'd probably be able to tell me the basics. You know, the, you have the wise men, you have the shepherds, the manger, uh, you have Mary and you have Joseph and you have them being turned away from the inn, right? This is what we become accustomed to. Now, for the men and women in this room that have a diamond of any sort, whether it's in your ring, whether it's in a necklace, an earring, wherever you may have it, I want you to think about the history that you have with that diamond. Okay? When you first got it, what you did was you looked at it, and you were almost in awe of it, right? You noticed all of the angles. You noticed all the intricacies, every glimmer. You even may have looked through it to see if there are any impurities. You, I mean, you really paid attention to everything about that diamond. And as time went on, uh, the intricacies became less and less. You started to notice them less and less. Not that for any reason the diamond became less important or that it was less valuable. It's just, it's, it's there. You see it every day and you, be, you grow accustomed to it. Now, if you've uh, done something like what my wife does, which she goes and gets her ring cleaned every so often, uh, what I never ceases to amaze me, when she gets her ring cleaned, we both look at it and go, whoa. Not because it's big or anything, um, but because it, it looks new. And we look at it and we go, goodness gracious, look at the curves, look at the, look at the, look at the angles, look at the glimmer. Um, it's as if the cleaning solution brought us back to the first time we bought it. It feels brand new to us. Um, and what I'm hoping this morning that you get to experience is a similar sensation with the infancy narratives. I think what happens is we tend to combine the stories together... Um, whereas the first time we hear them, we go, well, who are these magi? Who are these shepherds? Why did Jesus get rejected in the end? What, What are these angels? We ask all these questions, we notice all the angles, but as time goes on, we hear it every year, and it just becomes the same story. But the reality is, is these two stories were never intended to be one. Each author tells a different story for specific reasons. The magi, the wise men, are in Matthew's gospel, but they're not in Luke's. Why is that? The shepherds are in Luke's gospel, But they're not in Matthew's. Why is that? Matthew decides to start with this long, boring genealogy, and Luke gets straight to the point, and he talks about John the Baptist. Why is that? Uh, Luke wants to talk more about Mary, while Matthew wants to talk more about Joseph. We have these two different trajectories, but in our minds over the years, it may have become one story. Um, and what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the differences, and I want us to notice the similarities and see how the stories tell different, yet they commu- different stories that they communicate one truth, because they're all for very important reasons. Now, often when stories of influential people in the ancient world were told, they would be prefaced with a birth or an infancy narrative, and Jesus is no exception. So as the gospel writers are telling us the story of Jesus, they start with an infancy narrative. And... What the goals of an infancy narrative were, there were two goals. The first one was it wanted to explain the relationship of the hero to God. So we have Jesus, he's our main character, he's our hero. Who is he in relation to God? And the infancy narrative is going to answer that question for us. And the second question it's going to answer is what is God's plan at this point in history? With this newborn baby being, being entering the world, with this infant, what is God going to do with it? How is he going to change history with this infant, with this hero? And these are the uh, two things that we're going to focus on this morning. When we look at Matthew, when we look at Luke, what are they trying to say Jesus' relationship is to God, and what is God going to do through him? Um. Because they tell two different yet mutually exclusive stories that are pretty stinking cool. So I want, to, I want to journey through those. So let's begin. The first question, what relationship does the hero or the main character have to God? We're going to start with Luke. And if you're remember, if, if you familiar with Luke, you'll remember the timeline. He starts with John the Baptist. Okay? Whereas John starts all the way in the beginning, Luke starts with John the Baptist. And what he does is he has an angel come visit John the Baptist's parents. first parent he visits is Zechariah, a priest. He comes to him and he says, you're going to have a child. You and your wife are going to have a child. And Zechariah kind of has his doubts. He thinks it's improbable, if not impossible. He says, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Now, Zechariah is going to be punished, and I think it's because he decided to really point out how old his wife was. Um, (laughs) He could have just said we're both old, but he says well along in years... So that might be why he'd be punished, but what ends up happening is this is the angel's response to him. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Zechariah, this priest, this epitome, this sign of what obedience and right living is in Israel, he he, he doesn't believe this angel that comes to him. He says, There's no way this is going to happen. I'm too old. My wife's too old. We're way past childbearing years. Not going to happen. And because of it, the angel says, That's fine. If you want to doubt, you're going to be silent until what I said was going to happen actually does happen. Now, this is going to be very important for later. So just tuck this little t- timeline piece in the back of your brain, and we'll come back to it. After Zechariah comes to, uh, after Gabriel comes to Zechariah, he then shows up to Mary and has a, a similar situation. So, in answering this question, who is this character in relation to God? Luke does not play any games, so he gets right to the chase. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of the Most High. He will be born through the Holy Spirit. He is the Savior, the Messiah. He is a big deal. He's very, very important. Okay? Doesn't, he's very straightforward and simple. All right? Matthew, on the other hand, plays, he gets a little tricky. Matthew uses this method that we're not very familiar with in answering the question, who is Jesus? Uh, Matthew starts with a long genealogy. I know what you're thinking this morning. Gosh, I really hope to hear a great sermon full of lots of genealogy. Um, If that's what you're thinking, you're in luck, because we're going to read a genealogy. Um, Matthew starts his gospel with this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Riveting and exciting stuff, I know. Um, But the reality is, is when we look at this, this is actually very boring. Um, And we look at this and we go, I don't really care about this. In fact, I might even venture to say that as you might be reading this in a daily scripture reading, you might go ahead and say, all right, I get it. Jesus, Abraham, David, I can move on. I don't need to read all the names. I can't really pronounce them that much anyway, so we're just going to get on with it. That's because we live in 21st century, right? And we live in West Michigan, and we don't really have this context, this understanding. In fact, to a first century Jew, this would have been uh, communicating something very cool, something very exciting. Um, and so if we would, for a second, want to take off our uh, modern goggles and put on our first century Jewish goggles for a second as we look at this, because what this genealogy tells us is something that's very interesting, something that's very important in Matthew answering the question, Who is Jesus? All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the three sections. I'm not going to read them all, don't worry. Um, but uh, he, Matthew breaks his genealogy down into three sections, all right, and this is the first one. So if we look at the amount of names, and I highlighted them for you, if you count all the yellow names, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen. Okay, there's fourteen descendants in this section of the genealogy. So let's go to the next one. This is the second section. I'm not going to read it. Um, but notice that this is the second out of three, meaning it's the middle genealogy. And the first entry is King David. Now, this is going to be very, very important. But if we look at this uh, genealogy and we see how many descendants, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen. Okay, we've got the same amount of descendants in this section of the genealogy. Now, if we go to the next one which is the last one, and we count them again, we see a very similar pattern. We've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and the last entry in the genealogy, and the 14th one is Jesus. Okay, he's the end of the genealogy. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, Eric, you might have been sitting in your office, there was no one there because it was Christmas vacation, so maybe you just overthought this whole 14 thing, it's really not a big deal. Um, just in case that might be what you're thinking, Matthew tries and points very clear attention to it. Right after this, this is what he says. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to exile. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. David, or Matthew wants us to have very clear attention and he wants us to notice this fact. There are 14, 14, and 14 draws very close attention to it. So, why make all this stink about this? Why make all? This, why is 14 important? Why should it be important to us? Well, first off, again, we are not first century Jews, so we don't see this right away, but a first century Jew who knew their history, they would have looked at this and said, hey, Matthew, um, you're wrong. They're, that's actually not historically correct. In fact, there are five kings that I'm not going to say their names because they're too hard. Um, you omitted them. They're not in the genealogy, and we know our history. Those kings should have been there. What's the deal? And it's true. Matthew takes out five kings, and he adds four people that deserve to be in the genealogy, but maybe wouldn't commonly be put in the genealogy. Now, there's a lot of interpretations as to why he did this, and I want to suggest for a second that just because this genealogy is not historically accurate, because five kings are omitted, isn't the question we should be asking. It's not, is this true because it's historically accurate? The question we should be asking is, what is Matthew trying to tell us about who Jesus is? By taking these people out, by adding certain people in, what is Matthew trying to tell us? So, let's take a look at something real quick. If we Each section, right, that started with Abraham, then it was David, then it was exile. That can be seen as the three phases in Israel's history, all right? We've got our main characters. It starts with Abraham, the sign of God's faithfulness. Right? God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a father of many descendants. In fact, look up at the stars, and as many stars as you're able to count, that is how many descendants I will give you. I will be with you. I will be your God. Sign of God's faithfulness to Israel. And then we've got David, the Israelites. They come to God and say, give us a king. And God gives them a king, a great king, a humble shepherd, turned into this great military king that takes the nation of Israel to a small little entity and this great big thing. Right, he's the man after God's own heart, probably the greatest king that has ever existed. And then we've got the Babylonian exile, which is probably the darkest point in Israel's history as a nation. They kept going after other gods. They kept rebelling against God. And God said, if sin is what you want, sin is what you can have. And, and the Babylonians come and displace the Israelites, and, and, and they're in exile for hundreds of years. Um, And during this dark hour, during this dark period in their history, devout Jews seeking, longing, desiring salvation, seeking God to be present again, would pray some benedictions. And one, one of these benedictions that they would pray, they would pray three times daily, was this specific benediction. Cause the shoot of David to shoot forth quickly, and raise up his horn by thy salvation. For we wait on thy salvation all the day. They wait on salvation from what? From specifically someone that will come from the shoot of David. Someone who is a descendant of David. But what they know is that when God's God's faithfulness was greatest was when David was in control. So the next person to come that comes from the line of David, that's going to be him. That's going to be the big deal. That's going to be the guy that we're waiting for. That will be our Messiah. So David, and specifically a descendant of David, the Messiah is a huge deal to the audience that Matthew is writing to, which are first century Jews waiting for a Messiah, waiting for a king, a savior. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Um, There's a thing called gematria. It's a Hebrew numbering system. And what the Hebrew numbering system did was they assigned number values to letters. So each letter had a specific number. Um, And in Hebrew, if you're giving uh, all words, they don't have any vowels. It's just consonants. So if you look at King David's name, it's D-W-D, pronounced Dawid. Okay, And if you look at Gematria, the numbering system here is D equals 4, W equals 6, so 4 plus 6 plus 4 equals 14. This isn't a coincidence. He's being very, very specific about this. And, again, no coincidence, guess who the 14th entry in the entire genealogy is? It's King David. So... When we look at this genealogy, we might think, okay, this is the part of my uh, devotion I'm going to skip because it's not very interesting to me. But a first century Jew would be looking at this genealogy and it would have loudly proclaimed one basic thing that they have been waiting for. That this infant, Jesus, he is the completion of God's promise to Israel. This little baby, this infant, he is the promised one from the line of David. He is the king. He is the savior. He is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. He is the one that you have prayed for for hundreds of years. This is the one. And remember, this is also in the period of the intertestamental period. And if you're not familiar with what that is, the intertestamental period is the time from the last book of the Old Testament to the first book of the New Testament. What scholars say, that's about a 400-year gap. And in that time, it's believed that God was silent. No prophets spoke. The nation of Israel felt absent from God. And maybe some of you here are feeling that similar tension today. I know the holidays can be a time of great joy for some, but can be a time of great grief for others. Maybe it doesn't have to do with the holidays. Maybe you're here thinking to yourself, where is God? I don't feel him. When I pray, nothing happens. I do all the things that I'm supposed to do. I come to church. I'm a good person at work. Um, I, I give my 10%. And you know what? I just don't feel him anywhere. And, and, and I, when I pray, no one answers. And you know what? All these people that I'm looking around that aren't following God, that aren't doing the things that they're supposed to do, uh, it seems like their life is pretty good and it feels like God is blessing them. Where is God? Show yourself just once. All I need is just one little time for you to speak, for you to make your presence known. That's all I need. Just show me, God, that you are faithful in some way, somehow. And if you feel that way, or if you can relate to that at any point, then you know what the first century Jews felt like. You know what it feels to long for God's presence. And what Matthew is saying to the first century Jews specifically, but also saying to us, is this is the one you have waited for. If you can't feel God, if you're searching for God, if you want to hear his voice, if you want to feel his presence, you need to look no farther than to Jesus. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is who I have chosen to represent myself to you. This is the one you have waited for. You don't have to search any farther or anywhere else. This is the one. Jesus is the, Jesus is the one that you need. Matthew 1, the genealogy, communicates the greatest news ever to us, which is that Jesus is here, our waiting is over, over our Savior is now with us. And we see in both Matthew and in Luke's narrative that they say the same thing, but they choose a different method. But the content is the same. Jesus, this infant child to you that's born, is king of kings, king over Herod, king over Caesar. He is Lord of lords. He's the one you need to put your faith, your hope, and your trust in. He is the one that is going to save you. He is the one that you need. This is who Jesus is in relation to God. So we move on to the second, perhaps the most important question, which is so what? Now that we have the Son of God, what is God's plan with him? What is God intending to do with Jesus that is going to change anything? So let's look at Matthew first. Matthew wants to say, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now remember, this is Matthew's gospel. Luke does not have the Magi. So what is Matthew trying to say with the Magi? Now, again, we look at this, and we don't think of anything, but if you were a first century Jew, you would have said, hold on a second, Matthew, who came to see Jesus? The Magi? Are you kidding me? Why are you writing this down? Why are you saying this? This doesn't make any sense to us. This is a huge, huge red flag. And see, we might say, why is that a red flag? I think the Magi are great people. They give Jesus gifts. They're in our nativity scenes. This is fantastic. But really, the, the, maybe the nativity scene has desensitized us to the scandal of the wise men. Um, another name for wise men is Magi, which we see here. And Magi is plural for magician. Magician. A skilled magician, a learned magician, and very specifically from the text we see that they're astrologers. The way that they find truth, the way that they find knowledge in life is by looking at the stars and following that, and that's how they found Jesus. Now, why is this so scandalous? Well, they come from the east, most likely Babylon, and if you'll remember from the genealogy, Babylon, the Israelites are not very fond of. (laughs) In fact, the Babylonians are the exact reason why they are experiencing their greatest time of despair, their greatest time of their worst time of their life. It is The Babylonians are their worst enemies. And so the fact that you have even three Babylonians coming to see Jesus before the Jews are, is, it's offensive right? And not th- n- throw on to the, tap- the fact that they're magicians, the Magi represent the evil Gentiles disdained by devout Israel. In Israel's conviction, the Magi were idolaters, short and simple. They're astrologers. They're wise in the eyes of the world. They're not born to God's chosen Israel. They're horrible, horrible, horrible people in the eyes of the Jews. Now, this is significant because although Jesus is king of the Jews, all right, remember this is Matthew's gospel, he's saying this is the one you've waited for, it's three evil Gentiles who get to see him first, who notice him as divine and worship him as king. I mean, this is the equivalent of your worst enemy getting to do the thing that you have wanted to do your whole life before you, and because they did it, now it's never going to be the same for you. I It just... you almost want to cringe. When I, when the, the things that I think about in my life that my worst enemy got to do before it just makes me just so upset. And this is exactly how the Israelites are feeling. The irony is unbelievable. It isn't the people who've been waiting for him. It isn't the priests. It's the last people you would ever expect. And when they see Jesus, this is what they do. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Now, this isn't some sort of pagan worship. This isn't some sort of evil worship. The Greek word here means worship to God. They worshiped him. then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of frankincense, and myrrh. So although the most evil of evil of people in the the Jews' eyes come and see Jesus, um, in fact, they were sent by Herod to lay the foundation for Jesus' destruction. When they get there, they say, we're going to worship him. Given their profession, it's safe to assume that they may have come just to pay homage or they're going to participate in some sort of pagan ritual. But when they see Jesus, they notice. They can't help overwhelmed by the fact that this is no ordinary baby. This is the Son of God and He deserves our worship. And the fact that these three evil magicians are the first people to recognize God's glory and to worship Him should be of great comfort to us because this story communicates um, this story exists to communicate that not only, it's not just the Jews who are awaiting the king's birth, but it's the surrounding Gentile, the evil, the disbelieving, the people who you'd least expect, they notice that God is doing something. They notice that, that Jesus is more than just a baby, more than just a person, and that he deserves worship. Jesus didn't only come to bring salvation to one group of people. He came to save Gentiles as as well. He came for the people who least deserve it. And although God's salvation was reserved um, for the Jews, although they were the chosen nation, Jesus' salvation is going to reach far beyond those walls. In fact, what Matthew is trying to tell us is anybody who recognizes, who seeks, who finds Jesus and recognizes that he is deserving of worship and worships him, that is good enough. That is all you need. But that's not enough. You see, Jesus, he's not only coming to save sinners, but Matthew's genealogy, and this is where the four names that come in are are important, he's trying to say not only did he come for sinners, but he came through them as well. You see, a genealogy was very, very important because if you were put in a genealogy, you were immortalized. Um, People who would read history would see this and they'd know that you were an important person. So you'd want to put important people, right? Right? Rarely would you ever put a pure, upright, holy woman in a genealogy. But what Matthew does is not only does he put women in him, but he puts unlikely women in the genealogy. He has Rahab, who is a Gentile prostitute. He has Tamar, who is also a Gentile, who seduces her father-in-law. You have Bathsheba, a Gentile, and perhaps the most infamous adulterer in the nation of Israel because she's the one that had adultery with King David. Their greatest king, their greatest sign of faithfulness. And you also have Ruth, who's a Gentile. And so what what Matthew is trying to say to us is that uh, Jesus came not only for, but he came through sinners. Jesus didn't just stoop into our pathetic and disappointing human story at Christmas, Jesus has been, when Abraham was there, when David was there, when the unimpressive people that you wouldn't choose out of a lineup were there, Jesus was also there. He has been stooping through our story since the beginning of time. And if it weren't for people like Rahab, like Tamar, like Bathsheba, like Ruth, people that you would not choose to spend your time with, Jesus would not be here. He didn't just come for people like this. He came through people like this. So what is God doing? He's coming to save sinners through sinners. There's no pit that Christ will not descend into in order to reconcile you back to God. Even if it means being born in the most disgusting of places and under the most inconvenient of circumstances. What is God's plan? The one that we have waited for is coming through us and he's coming to save us and he gives us salvation today. Now, I want to take a quick moment to see what does Luke want to tell us in answering the question, who is Jesus? What is God doing at this moment in history? You see, in Matthew's gospel, he likes to emphasize the men. He emphasizes Joseph's faithfulness as a husband um, and him not divorcing Mary when he finds out she's pregnant. But Luke likes to uh, flip the script a little bit. You guys remember Zechariah, the angel that uh, Gabriel comes to Zechariah and he doubts. Well, Zechariah is a priest, the highest honor a Jewish man could have. He was the model of obedience, the model of right living to the Jewish people around him. And Luke paints him in a very negative, doubting light, which would not be a favorable way to paint a priest. Um, He actually forgets Joseph altogether in many points of the story, and he wants to highlight Mary, a woman, again, who would have been the lowest of society during that time. Um, Luke highlights Mary as the the epitome of obedience and faith. And this is the first of many examples, not only in his gospel, but in his uh, infancy narrative, that Luke is going to say, look, this is the unimpressive little people, They're actually the important ones. These are the ones that God is coming to. These are the ones that God is going to find favor with. It's the first time, but you will see it throughout his narrative. Um, And after the angel comes to Mary, this is her response. And this is how we see Luke highlighting the obedience of Mary. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the irony is palpable. Okay? Luke's gospel is telling us that with the arrival of Jesus, don't necessarily assume that the priests, the Zecharias of the world, the ones who have it all together, the ones who look like they have it all together, don't assume that they do have it all together. You see, the priest failed. While a poor, marginalized, teenage girl shows everyone the kind of faith they ought to have, Mary becomes the example of what it is to live in right relationship with God. While the devout and chosen people of Israel fail to respond to God the way they should, a marginalized, poor, teenage girl becomes their biggest role model. And when it comes time for Jesus to be born, the conditions could not be any worse. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn a son she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them couldn't even be there wasn't any room in the inn for them and then and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over the flocks at night and the angel of the lord appeared to them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were terrified but the angel said to them do not be afraid i bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And this is significant. The shepherds get to hear the great news that everyone will hear, but they get to hear it first. Today in the town of David a son has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Mary is so low in society that she can't even secure a room to give uh, birth to Jesus. Most, if not all of you in this room, were born in facilities that cost thousands of dollars to make sure that your birth was done in an effective and healthy way. But the creator of the universe, the one who's going to save us, he's born on a farm where animals literally live, eat, and do their dirty business. All right. When it comes time to give birth to Jesus... On a literal farm, we see shepherds as the witnesses to the birth of King Jesus. Shepherds at that time were the lowest, if not at the bottom of the societal uh, triangle, whatever you want to call it. They were at the bottom. They were peasants. They were people that you did not care about, and they were void of all power and of all privilege. So you see, while Matthew is concerned with highlighting the Gentiles to say it's the evil people, what Luke is saying is that the most unimpressive of people are the most important ones. It's Mary, the lowly, marginalized teenage girl who's going to become the object of greatest honor in giving birth to the Messiah. The lowest of the low is going to become the greatest. It's the shepherds watching over the fields, the poorest of the poor, the lowest of the loads, the people that we pass in the streets and the people that we drive past in the underpass and we don't pay attention to and we act like they don't exist. It's those kinds of people who are going to get the good news that Jesus has come. They're going to be the ones to come see the king and worship him. These are the people God chooses to surround himself with. These are the ones that he chooses to be with, the ones that no one else would choose to, which begs the question, what is our life looking like? Are, what kind of people are we spending our time with? Are we associating ourselves with the kind of people that Jesus would associate with? Do our lives mirror the kind of company that Jesus keeps? God's glory, normally associated with a temple, is now manifest on a farm. And Luke puts us on notice that the world as we know it is a completely different one. It's a one where we're called not only to love God, but to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, even if that neighbor is an outsider, a Gentile, an evil person, even if that neighbor is poor and looks nothing like us, even if they are the least of these, even if it's a person we don't want anything to do with. Luke is telling us that if you want to experience the glory of God, these are the kinds of places you have to go to, these are the kinds of people that you have to invest your time in because this is what God chooses. Life, as you know it, can't be the same because Jesus is now here. So in closing, what we see is the birth of Jesus is this powerful story that communicates to us that of all kings who have ever been and will ever be, none is greater than this infant that you see before you. This, while they tell two different stories, they tell these simple truths. This is the one that you have waited for. If you are in despair, if you feel... If you don't feel God's presence, if you feel like he's absent, look no further and look nowhere else than to Jesus. We no longer have to wait for God's voice. We don't have to wait for his moving like we did in Israel, wandering in the desert. God is here now, and we don't need to look any further. This is the one we have waited for. This is the one who is coming through people like us to save everyone who will recognize and worship him as king. This is the one who is turning the ways that we usually operate in the world completely upside down for his glory and his glory alone. It wasn't the priests who came to see the birth of Jesus. It was evil magicians and it was lowly shepherds. It doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter who came. What matters is that he came through people like them for them. He came through people like us. He came for us. He came for me. He came for you. And while we've already unwrapped our gifts for Christmas, I pray and I hope that these truths may be your greatest gifts this holiday season. And that is that Jesus is our king. He is the only one that we need. He is the only one that we need to look to. He is the one that will fulfill all of our needs. Secondly, he came through people like us to save each and every one of us. No pit is too deep. For Christ to descend into if it means reconciling us back to God. For those truths, I say praise God. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for the way that you've chosen to interact um, with our human story. God, it's 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 an improbable one. It's one that doesn't make sense to us. Yet it's one that grants us salvation and it's one that gives us life. God, may we have the courage and the boldness to imitate you in any way that we can. God, to spend time around people that we wouldn't normally choose to because that's the example you gave for us. And God, as we go through this holiday season and as we have multiple sources of joy and gifts, may our greatest gifts be the truth and the knowledge that you are our king and that you have come to save us. In your name we pray. Amen. If you need somebody to pray with you, there is a... Prayer room here to our right and please go there and somebody will be there waiting for you. And will you please stand and receive the blessing of the Lord as we leave this place for the last time in 2015, the last Sunday of the year. And also beginning uh, next Sunday, we begin a new year. And may the Lord who gave us a wonderful 2015 and the Lord who is going to be with us in 2016. May the love of that Father, the grace of the Son, Jesus And the power of the Holy Spirit be with you at the end of this year and in the new one. Amen. You may go in peace.